All right, for the rest of you that are staying here, if you did not receive a, an outline, there'll be things up on the screen there for you. But if you have your Bibles with you this morning, I want you to go to a familiar passage of Scripture. I want to look at it from a different perspective this morning. John chapter 3. You know, we're all familiar with John chapter 3, 16. It's that familiar verse that we see, you know, written out at football games and ball games and, you know, for God so loved the world... Um, and we love that verse, and it's a powerful verse, but yet I think oftentimes we look at it out of context. We look at it from the perspective that God so loves the world that everybody's got a free pass. That's not what John 3.16 is saying at all. And this morning I want to talk to you about the fact of when is good enough, good enough for God? When is good enough in your life, good enough for God? I want us to look at John chapter 3, and I want to look at verses 14 through 21 this morning. I want you to hear this passage written in context as Jesus is speaking here to Nicodemus. All right, let's stand together as we honor the reading of the word of the Lord this morning. In John chapter 3, starting in verse 14, and it says, As Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation that light is come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For every one that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the, up to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, that, he, that they are wroth in God." Father, we ask that, Lord, as we listen to the, this familiar verse in the context of what it is written, gives us a new meaning. I pray that, Father, that you would take the word of the Lord and that you would speak unto your hearts of your people today. Lord, I've been praying that the Holy Spirit would move in and out and up and down and through each and every heart. Lord, here today, both that are in the room and those that are, that are in other places or at home listening, that, Father, that your spirit might prick their hearts to recognize that we must answer the question, when is good enough, good enough for God? Lord, I pray that you would move me out of the way and hide me behind the cross, that it not be my word, but your word that is spoken today. May Jesus be glorified as we look to him. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. God bless you. You may be seated this morning. You've probably heard this question before. Maybe you've even asked it to someone. If you were to die tonight and stand before God and he said to you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say to him? What a great question. I use it all the time with people. And all the time I, I hear such things as, well, I, I think I've lived a good life. I, I've tried to be a good person. I, I, I've tried to do this. I hear a lot of good works mentality. And when I approach a Christian, 
and I ask that question, even there, sometimes I get mixed things. I'll, I'll hear because of Jesus, but I've tried. I hope I get in because I've tried to do the best I could as a Christian. The question that comes to my mind is, when is good enough good enough for God? Now, when I ask people that question, a large part of the time, we hear such things as I would tell them, I think I've lived a pretty good life. Hopefully I'm good. I've, I, I've done enough to outweigh the bad. Maybe some of you feel the same way this morning. But here's the problem. Just how good is good enough? How good do you have to be or do I have to be to get into heaven on my good works, on my ability? Well, we're going to talk about that this morning. So, what is actually the cutoff point? When is it that we tip the scales? When is it that we turn the corner? Is good enough good enough? Well, consider this. If you thought about it this way, that if 99.9% were good enough, then listen, two million documents would be lost by the IRS this year. Now, for those of us that have to pay taxes, we might say, as long as it's mine, I'm good with that. But if I'm getting money back, I hope it's not mine because I need that money. Consider this. 22,000 checks would be deducted from the wrong bank accounts in the next 60 minutes. Can I have some of your money? Is that good enough? Listen to this one. 1,314 telephone calls would be misdirected by telecommunication companies every minute. 2,488 books would be shipped to the wrong, with the wrong covers on them each day. Over 5.5 million cases of soft drink would be sold in the next year flat. Anybody excited about that one? 20,000 incorrect drug prescriptions will be written in a year. 12 babies will be given to the wrong parents every day. Obviously, hearing those statistics, we'd say, well, good enough is not good enough. That, that's not acceptable. That doesn't meet the standard. I don't want somebody else's kid. I barely want my own. I don't like flat sodas. I like them that are fizzy when I open them. All right? When I make a call, oftentimes it is the wrong number. But that's my fault. So why would we think if that in our society is not good enough, we're not going to stand for that? That just doesn't meet it, even if it's 99.9% .9 correct. Then why would we think that living a good enough life would get us into heaven? You've heard people ask, if I try my best, won't God just let me into heaven? Or maybe you've heard them say, doesn't God just require me to be better than the average person? Or, don't I have to just live a good life to be a Christian? You say you've got to be a Christian to get into heaven, but don't I just have to live a good life to be a Christian? Or how about, how could a loving God send good people to hell? Boy, that's a great question. 
Martin Luther, the reformer, wrote this a long time ago, the most damnable and pernicious heresy that has plagued, ever plagued the mind of man is the idea of somehow he can be good enough to make himself good enough to deserve to live with an all-holy God. Then someone else as well said, man is incurably addicted to doing something for his own salvation. But I ask the question, one is good enough, good enough to get one into heaven? Well, let's look at what the Bible says. The Bible tells us here that there is some answers that we need. First of all, we see that God has an admission plan to enter heaven. Did you know that God actually has an admission plan for us to enter into heaven? Oh, yes. God has already set it up, what it's going to take for you and I to get into heaven. Now, by the way, in one sense, one can be good enough to earn his way into heaven. But here's the problem. They have to be perfect. Any perfect people in the room want to raise your hand? Because if you are, you're lying. And therefore, you're not perfect. Hmm. Oh, there's a catch. God's standard to enter into heaven is simply perfection. Now, you might be thinking, well, then, Lord, have mercy. None of us are going to make it. In our own abilities, and our own desires, and our own goodness, you're exactly right. None of us make the cut. However, we'll look at that a little later. On a scale of 1 to 10, of evil to good, wrong to right, we can place ourselves anywhere on that line. But yet God's word simply says that we still fall short of his perfection. We're never going to be righteous enough. We'll never reach the top of the scale. The line that says perfection is beyond our grasp. On one occasion, Jesus, making this point in Scripture identified the two most obviously and outward religious people groups that he knew in his day. And they were the Pharisees and the scribes. And he told his listening audience so that they would understand that there is absolutely nothing that you and I can do to earn our way into heaven. We'll never meet the standard of God's admission plan into heaven on our own. He said this of the, the religious leaders... In Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, he says, For I say unto you, that except you, that your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now listen to what he was saying. He was saying to the common people who all looked at themselves as being lower than the Pharisees and the scribes, not able to ascribe to their level of godliness... Jesus said to them, unless you can rise above their level, you can't get into heaven. Talk about blowing the wind out of their sails. Talking about taking everything away from them. There was The only thought in their mind was, we'll never make it. On another occasion, Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 5, <clears throat> verse 48. He said, be ye therefore perfect even as your Father, which is in heaven, is perfect. Now what is he saying? If you want to get into heaven on your own abilities, here's what you've got to do. You simply just need to be perfect like God the Father is perfect. Can any of us meet that challenge? No. God's standard 
never falls short of complete righteousness and holiness. His admission plan is simply, if you want to get in on your own, you simply have to be perfect like the Father, which you are going to spend eternity with. We cannot do that. Anything less than perfection is simply sin. Think about heaven for just a moment. What do we think about when we think about heaven? Besides the streets of gold and, and the crystal sea and, and the, uh, the, the jasper walls and all of those things, what do we think about? Well, I, I oftentimes think about not what is there, but what's not going to be there. The no mores that are there. I like what the, the, the Bible tells us that, that one day in heaven there'll be no more tears. There'll be no more sadness. There'll be no more pain. There'll be no more sickness. There'll be no more death. Do you know why there'll be no more of these? Because all of these are caused by sin and sinful people. And because sin and sinful people won't be in there anymore. Those things don't exist there. Heaven will be a wonderful place not just because of who is there, God himself, but it will be a wonderful place because of what is absent from there, sin that we live in in this world. God's standard of perfection is not arbitrary. God does not grade on the curve. Now, I know some of us think, well, you know, I, I, I'm not quite perfect, but if God will just curve just a little bit, I can get real close. If you don't believe me, just ask my wife. She'll tell you that's true. Don't bother. God does not grade on the curve, neither does my wife. He does not say, oh, you, you're just close enough. Oh, you've tried very hard. I'm so impressed with the effort that you have placed. Because of your effort, I'm going to give you a, a, a free pass. God does not compare. Listen, he does not say, well, Bill... I know that you've tried real hard and you are doing much better than John. So Bill, you're in, John, you're out. Or he doesn't say, well, um, Betty, you've been better at gossiping than, than Sue, so Betty, you're in, Sue, you're out. God does not make arbitrary choices like that. That would be like you and I saying, we're going to jump the Grand Canyon because we have been good at long jumps. Now, you might even be good enough that you can set the next world record for the longest jump. But guess what? You're still going to splatter on the bottom. You can't jump far enough. None of us can. Now, don't get me wrong. Now, I'm not saying you're bad people. Now, I look out over this group of folks and I say, boy, this is a pretty good looking group. You know? Maybe it's, the, maybe it's the bad ones that have stayed away today. No, no. We're all a pretty good-looking group. If we were grading ourselves on goodness, wouldn't we all rank ourselves right up there as pretty high on that scale? We'd say, boy, you know, I see the, the wickedness of this world, and I see what's going on, and boy, I, I, I think I'm doing pretty well. Now, we, we might even say, well, preacher, now, you know, uh, I'm pretty good about paying my taxes. I'm pretty good about spending time with my family. I'm pretty good about doing this and doing that. So maybe we need to call ourselves Danny and Debbie Decent. 
you know, Danny and Debbie D said they do all the right things. From our perspective, we do everything right. We pay our taxes. We, we, we you know, we, we're faithful at our jobs. We, we, we do what we need to do. We, we, we're doing all of the right things. But like so many of us, we have those little things where we might just stretch the truth just a little bit. We might shade it just a touch. We might uh, uh, fudge on this or on that. We might gossip about this or that thing. We were talking about that in Sunday school. And from our perspective, we might even say, you know what, all of those things that I did, I can justify, and they really weren't that bad. It really wasn't that big of a problem, so it really doesn't take me, you know, it doesn't lower my grade much. But God does not look at it from that perspective. What God sees simply is a person wrapped in sin and failures. So let me ask you, is there any sin in your life? Anybody got sin in their life? Well, of course we do. If so, then what does the Bible say? We are not perfect. Paul reminds us of this fact when he wrote in Romans chapter 3 and verse 23. Some of you have failed, others of you have made it through. Right? That's what he said, right? No. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. None of us have met the mark. None of us have been able to keep up with what God's standard for perfection is. Therefore, none of us are admitted into heaven. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm getting a little depressed right about now. I'm thinking, wait a minute. I thought the whole idea of being a Christian was that we get to go to heaven. I thought all about being good and doing the right things, we get to go to heaven. But according to this... My goodness, my works, my, my, all my good things are like filthy rags unto God. So what do I do? Well, for those of you that might be a little depressed, I want to tell you there's good news. Because, yes, God has an entrance plan to get into heaven, and we don't meet it on our own. However, God's resolution to our sin problem is a pardon. Isn't that great? God's resolution to our sinful problem is that he has pardoned us from our sin. Now we've got to understand what that means. So in John chapter 3, in verses 16 through 20, we find that God offers unto us a great pardon for our sin. Fortunately, that's good news. There's a solution, a remedy to our imperfection. God's resolution is a pardon found in none other than Jesus Christ. Here's how it works. Christ made a simple sacrifice for sins, and that was it. One, one for all. It was a perfect sacrifice by a perfect person to perfect some imperfect people. Our sins are taken care of for our good. The Apostle Paul describes it this way when he wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For he has made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made righteous or the righteousness of God in him. When Jesus Christ, God's son, went to the cross and took upon himself our sin, 
our mistakes, our evil, our unrighteousness. He became the ultimate sacrifice that satisfied the will of God. I read this, R.G. Lee, one of the former pastors of Bellevue Baptist Church in Memphis, Tennessee, was visiting Gordon's Calvary in Jerusalem. It's one of the possible sites that they, they think is the accurate site of where Golgotha was. And Lee told his Arab guide that he wanted to walk to the top of that very hill. At first, the guide tried to discourage him, telling him it was just too far to go up and it just wasn't worth the journey. You could see everything that you needed to see right from here. But Lee was determined. So he started to walk alone. And once he did, the guide decided to follow along with him. And as he saw Lee reach the top of the, the mountain at the point of Golgotha, he saw Dr. Lee take his hat off and bow his head and begin to weep. And the guide simply asked him, Sir, have you been here before? And Dr. Lee said, Yes, 2,000 years ago. You see, the reality is that because of our sin, Christ was nailed to a cross. Because of our sin, He took upon Himself the punishment that we deserved. So yes, we've been there 2,000 years ago, but here's the truth. That if we want to access heaven, the only way that we can do it is to go back to Calvary's cross and find the redemption that God has given unto us, the pardon for our sin. We must go to the cross. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever will take a journey back to Calvary and recognize that they are sinful, that they are broken, that they are without hope, that the only hope that we have is what Jesus did on Calvary's cross for us. The only hope is that we bow ourselves in humble attrition to say, I am a sinner and I can't make it, but His righteousness has been applied to me and now I am found righteous in Him. It is because of Calvary that we find a pardon for our sin. So when it comes to our salvation, when it comes to us going to heaven, whether we are more like Hitler in our evil or more like Mother Teresa in our purity, our sins are no longer the issue. So hear me. The issue is what we do with Jesus Christ. The issue is not what we're doing about our sin. It is about what we're doing with the one who pardoned us from our sin. Our sins are no longer the issue. Jesus Christ is God's solution to our not measuring up to God's standard. Jesus has already paid the price for our sins. Jesus is the perfect sacrifice by a perfect person to perfect some imperfect people. Now notice what I said, some. Not every imperfect person is forgiven because Jesus died on the cross. And I'll explain why in just a moment. Think about it this way. If a criminal was handed a pardon that would release him from prison, the issue is no longer the crime in which he committed. Rather, it has everything to do with the pardon that he is receiving. 
If he refuses to receive the pardon, he remains in prison. The question, why is this man in prison, and why is he not out of prison, has two different distinct answers. He is in prison simply because he is a convicted criminal. He is not out of prison because he has refused the pardon that has been given unto him. Likewise, the answer to the question, why will people be in hell? Because we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The second question is, why will they not be in heaven? And the simple answer is because they have refused to accept the pardon that God gave through Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son. Let me share a story that maybe, if you're not getting it, maybe we'll clarify it. Many years ago, in a little small country town, a young boy shot and killed a man while gambling one night. In those days, murderers were sentenced, that were found guilty were sentenced to be hung. But the town knew this young boy and they saw great potential in him. And so they filed a petition and everybody signed it asking the judge to give him a pardon for that murder. The judge reluctantly to, to go along decided that yes, I will give him a pardon based upon one restriction. He said that I dress up as the clergy in a, in a clergy's robe and collar and take the, the pardon placed between God's word and offer him the pardon. The town folks said, sure. Judge dressed up, took the pardon that he had written, gave the man freedom, put it in between God, the pages of God's word, walked to the jail. As the judge was nearing the jail, he could hear the young boy in there looking out the window saying, Preacher, get away from me. I don't want what you're selling. Preacher, I don't care what you're offering. I don't want nothing to do it. Cussing and cursing at the, 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 the so-called preacher. But the judge said, sir, you don't understand what's here, what I'm offering. He said, I don't care what you're offering. I want nothing to do with it. Dejected. The judge turned around and went back home, sorrowful that the young man refused. Later on that day, the guard went in to see the, the young prisoner and said, son, you don't understand what you just did. He said, that was the judge dressed up as a preacher. And between the pages of God's word was a pardon, signed, sealed, and ready to be delivered. And you refused it. Later that week at his hanging, the young man upon the gallows before the black bag was placed over his head was given the opportunity to speak last words. And these are the words that he said. To the people that were there, he said, I am not dying because I murdered a man. I am dying today because I refused to receive the pardon offered unto me. Think about that just for a moment. What I'm saying to you today is a matter of life or death. The issue, my friends, is not your sin. The issue 
is simply what you do with Jesus Christ and the pardon that he has offered unto you. Our fault before God is not necessarily our sin. He made a remedy for that. We can go back to Calvary's cross and we can find forgiveness at the foot of the cross. Our fault, however, lies in rejecting Jesus Christ as the pardon for our sin. Yeah, but I know some of you are, your, your people are asking the question, and I know it's been asked over and over again, how could a loving God send good people to hell? That question itself reveals a couple of misconceptions within the question. I want to deal with those misconceptions this morning. First of all, God does not send people to hell. I want you to look at verse 18 with me. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. God does not send any one of us to hell. God does not send us to that wicked, awful place. The problem that we think is that God is the one condemning us when the Bible says that it is we that condemn ourselves because we have rejected the only pardon God has offered. Hell is the ultimate expression of God's highest regard for the dignity of man. He has never forced us to choose Him even when it means that we could choose hell over Him. C.S. Lewis stated, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those in whom God says in the end, thy will be done. For you and I have been given free choice, a free opportunity to express to, to God whether we will receive or reject that which he is offering unto all who would receive. All that are in hell have chosen to be there. God did not send them there. No, God does not send people to hell, nor does he send people to hell any more than the judge sent that boy to be hung that day. The second misconception is found in the word people. Now, people is a neutral statement. It means everybody. But here's the problem. The word people is, is implying innocence. Why would God send an innocent person, a, a, you know, good people to hell? What did we already define? How many of us are good in this room? How many of us are good enough? What is the level that God says that is good? We've said that the only level of God's standard for good is perfection. Does any of us meet the level of perfection? Therefore, God does not send anyone to hell, nor is there any good person that is in hell. There are no good persons. How many of us have ever lied? How many of us have ever cheated? How many of us have ever taken something that doesn't belong to us? How many of us have hated somebody? Then by your own account, you are a, a conniving, thieving murderer. And we all deserve hell. There are no good people in this world. For we are all born with a sinful nature. And therefore, God does not send good people to hell. We choose to reject the pardon 
Because we like darkness better than we like light. We'd rather live in our sin than confess our sin before a forgiving God. God simply honors the choice of every one of us either to receive or to reject His gift of salvation. So with that being said, the third thing that I want us to understand today is that there is an entrance exam for uh, getting into heaven and it is perfection. For all of us that have missed that level of perfection, thank God there's a pardon, but we must receive that pardon. But how does one receive the pardon that God has offered freely to all who would receive? John chapter 3 is telling us that God has said there are those who, who would rather live in their sin and die in their sin than receive the gift that God has given. But how does one receive that wonderful gift that God has made available to all who would receive? God provides salvation through personal faith. Verse 21 to me just says it all for us. So what must we do? But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, that they are wroth before God. Recognizing that my wickedness, my sinfulness deserves his judgment, but I come into the light to ask him to forgive my sins, to cleanse me from my sins so that I might receive his righteousness instead of my sinfulness. John chapter 3, verse 21 reminds us that we make a choice through personal faith. We must by faith accept Jesus' finished work on Calvary's cross as God's only accepted entrance into heaven. God provides salvation through what we call personal faith in Jesus Christ. But what does personal faith really mean? What does it look like? We must trust in what He has done for us and not what we have done for ourselves. Did you know that 10 out of 11 world religions teach salvation by good deeds? Christianity stands alone with the emphasis on faith rather than on works of salvation. The Apostle Paul wrote this in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace... Are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves? It is the gift of God, not of works. Least any man should boast. The Bible tells us that we have been saved by grace through faith. May God's grace be poured out upon us today. May God's grace be given to each one as we come to Him today to say, Lord, I stand before you as a sinner condemned unto death, but looking for your grace in the midst of my need, through faith. In this context, the word faith basically means to trust or to believe in something or someone. Paul urges here that, that goes further and suggests that the state of believing is based upon the reliability and the trustworthiness of the one that we have trusted. In other words, I know that what Jesus did on Calvary's cross was acceptable for, for the Father because God Himself said it was. I know 
that I can trust Him to get me through the door where I know that I cannot trust me to do what is right to get me through the door. I put my trust in a higher power, in an ability of something that I cannot do in my own, but I know that He has already done for me. There is a grave warning here, my friends, for both the believer and the unbeliever. We need to realize that it is not enough to rely on or trust that God is love. Yes, God is love. The Bible tells us that He is love. For God so loved the world, it's unmeasurable. But it is not enough to hope that everything will work out in the end and that we will end up somehow good enough. Again, that somehow God will show His rich mercy upon us even though we're trying to do it on our own. Yes, He is rich in mercy, but it is not enough. Such vague abstracts of notion lead to inactivity and unresponsiveness. So let me be clear here. The danger is this, that we have all heard this so many times before, that even as ones who have already received Jesus Christ, we think that all I've got to do is sit here today. All I've got to do is be passive today because God's already done everything for me. And, and I know that I'll get in just because. The problem with so many Christians is we were sitting on our laurels instead of doing what we're called to do. And it is the problem with the lost is they think that somehow, some way, God's mercy will just, just shine a little bit on me and I will get in just by the skin of my teeth. You ever heard that one before? Oh, I've heard that one many times. Don't worry, preacher. I'm going to get in, but it'll just be on the skin of my teeth. No, my friends, it's not that way. You're either all in or you're not in at all. And we need to recognize that. There is a grave danger of just sitting on our laurels. It's more than a, a, a simple crossing of fingers and hoping for the best. It's more than clicking our heels like Dorothy three times and saying, take me to a better place, take me to a better place, take me to a better place. Listen, my friends. There is a word found in there, the word for, that we must be aware of. For the word for changes the way that we see everything. Paul exhorts us to believe, trust, and put our faith in God who thus works so graciously towards us that we would put our faith in Him to receive salvation by grace through faith is a radical change of perspective. Now we see the hand of God fully at work in the heart of man, drawing man out of their sinful darkness into his marvelous light. Yes, salvation is a gift. It's a free gift. You and I cannot work for it. We don't deserve it. We didn't earn it. 
We simply have trusted in the finished work of Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross, that he paid the penalty for our sin, that what he did there, and, and, and as I accept his pardon for my sin, it will be enough for God. It's like taking a medicine. I have certain cold medicines that I, I believe in. And we've got them in our cabinet, in our medicine cabinet at home. And when I feel a cold coming on, I know that if I take those medicines, if I do what is needed when it is needed, I will get through that cold. But I found something. That having that medicine in that cabinet and me knowing that it works, but never going to that cabinet, opening up that bottle and taking a swig of it doesn't do me a bit of good. And I suffer through the cold. It is not until I take the medicine that it can do its work in my life. It is not until we accept Jesus Christ as our only hope of salvation, our only way to heaven, our only source of forgiveness, our only way in which we can be found righteous before a holy God, that when we apply His death, burial, and resurrection, His blood to our life, then we are born again. So as I close this morning, I'm going to ask something of you. And that is that no one move around this morning unless, of course, it is to come to the altar. And please feel free to do that when the Spirit leads. Because what I want to talk to you about in these last closing moments is a matter of life or death. It's a matter of your life or your death. I want you to pray one for another. I want you, as I asked you earlier today, to look around to who was here today. I want you just to think about those that are sitting around you. I want you to pray that God would open their hearts, that the Holy Spirit would speak and move them to respond to the need of salvation, to the promise of eternal life, to receive the gift of God. And be reminded that as you're praying for those around you, they are praying for you. So as the Spirit begins to stir in your heart, know that it is because God has moved to cause someone else to pray for you. So with every head bowed and every eye closed, I want you to stand to your feet. It just makes it easier for you to move by the Spirit if you're already on your feet. With every head bowed and every eye closed, I've got a series of questions that I want to ask you today that I ask that you listen to and answer honestly within your heart. Holy Spirit, I ask you to help us today to answer these few questions of, that are a matter of life or death from the depths of our heart. So are you listening to me now? Here's the question. The questions that are a matter of life or death. 
Was there a time in your life when you've honestly realized that you were a sinner and admitted to God that you cannot do this on your own? The second question goes like this. Do you truly understand that Christ took your place, died in your stead, suffered your penalty, took upon himself the, the, the beating and the torment for your sin on Calvary's cross? Do you understand that the real issue is not your sin? For your sin has been settled on Calvary's cross. But the real issue today, the right now, the real question for you this morning is, what are you doing with Jesus Christ? Are you rejecting Him and saying, I don't want what you're offering, I refuse your pardon? Or are you saying, Lord, thank you for the pardon of my sin, thank you for the promise of eternal life, thank you that it is your righteousness that is applied to my life. Listen to the words of Jesus once again in John chapter 3, verse 18. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. The final question of life or death is this. Have you received Jesus Christ alone for your salvation? If not, why not? Do you not understand that it is a matter of your life or your death? I'm going to ask the sound room if you could just to pull up some music and just play something softly. As I pray for you this morning, I'm going to ask that as they begin to play the music, that if the Spirit of the Lord is speaking to your heart today, if you've never received the pardon that comes from Jesus Christ and Him alone, today is the important day because it is a matter of life or death. Your life, your death where you're going to spend eternity either separated from God and you won't be able to say, if I reject Jesus today and I stand before God and He, he says, you're not welcome here. You had an opportunity, but you rejected my pardon. If you're in hell at some point in your life, you cannot say, God, it's your fault. Oftentimes, want to look at John 3.16 as that promise verse that everybody gets to go to heaven because God is so good.